The word of Christ from the Gospel of Matthew. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they, found, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to read it together, to think on it together, to hear you through it together. And Lord, we pray that you would move among us by your Holy Spirit, minister your word to our hearts, and tra- change and transform our lives by it as we give ourselves to you in faith. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So kingdom life is a surrendered life. It is a life surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. It is a life in which we are brought to the place of willingness to risk everything for Him, to be with Him, which again harkens back to the meaning and significance of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. The entire gospel, really. Emmanuel. God with us, God in our midst, God among us. A people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On them, light has shone. Kingdom life involves the surrender of our welfare, our health, our well-being. giving all to him who is Lord. Come what may, be what may to my body, be what may to my health. This is what it looks like to walk in faith and obedience because he is Lord. Kingdom life involves the surrender even of our reputation. 
Have you heard the name Ivan Provorov? You might not have heard of that name. He's an NHL player, and I'm not a big hockey fan, although in high school I watched a good bit of hockey. I actually, Austin, I got it involved as a fan of the, uh, the Colorado Avalanche. I was a big Avalanche fan in high school for some reason. I don't know. Who's their big goalie? Uh, oh, that was a long time ago. I don't, rem- like I don't recall. We'll, we'll talk about oh, okay. Um, but he's an NHL player, Ivan Provorov. Uh, uh, it's a hard name to say, Provorov. It's actually spelled very simply. It's spelled like it sounds, but it's hard to pronounce sometimes if you're not used to it. NHL player for the Philadelphia Flyers. Just this week, he created a bit of a minor firestorm because he refused to wear pride swag at a Tuesday night Philadelphia Flyers game. Not even for the game, but instead it was swag that all the players were asked to wear in the pre-game warm-up, a little skate around, you know, just for the fans. But then let's rush back to the locker room and take it all off and get our real gear on, right? Trade out our rainbow-colored sticks for the real sticks that we're going to use. It's all a show. It's all a gimmick, really. Let's be honest. But he skipped the warm-up, stayed in the locker room. And of course, you can imagine all the hysteria about how dangerous our culture now is because one man said, no thanks, I'll pass. It's theatrical. Not him, but them. It's performative support for a cause that really, five minutes later, means nothing. We take it all off and we get out and we get back to what we're really here for, a hockey game that all the fans have come to see. But he created a bit of a firestorm because this one person on one team said, no thanks, I'll pass. He didn't do it publicly. He was asked publicly after the fact, wait a minute, why weren't you out there? Why weren't you wearing the swag? Why weren't you skating around with the same stick that everybody else had for a few minutes? Good for him, he simply explained, look, I believe in freedom of choice and freedom to stand for what you believe in and I made my choice and I stood for what I believe in. I was being true to myself and my religion. Now, of course, when asked, well, what religion are you? And he says, Russian Orthodox. Everybody then wants to know, well, does he support the war in Ukraine? What is it like? What what now? Because we're on to another cause. Because one man decided to not say what he was demanded to say. Now that's not to say that the team demanded, in fact, the team stood behind him. But it's interesting. On an entire hockey team, only one person said no thanks. And he sat alone in a locker room. Now I do wonder, were there others skating around 
wondering, this is kind of silly, but, you know, it's what's asked of me. But he was true to himself. And interestingly enough, his team, his teammates, the league have all stood behind him, even applauding his willingness to, quote, be true to himself, noting that that's kind of typical of him. But that's just it. The existential demand to be true to oneself is the product of a world without objective and ultimate meaning. A world in which you must make for yourself any meaning if you're to have any meaning at all. Figure out yourself, identify yourself, project yourself, and just be true to yourself. That's the only thing that gives meaning to a meaningless world. Which, of course, in the end, is just a meaningless exercise in a world without meaning. There are coming times when you and I will be forced either to compromise or to be ostracized. Period. Do not doubt it. They will crush you. Gone are the days of live and let live. And irony of all ironies, tolerance is now intolerable. Think of it. Another hot topic calls it, you know, if I'm going to get in trouble, might as well just go all in, right? Um, today is Right to Life Sunday. The first in a, in a post-Row America. Roe did not make it to 50 years of age. Thank the Lord. We will be made to care. The world demands our allegiance. Demands our solidarity. Demands our submission to its lordship. In the end, truly, we will surrender ourselves to something. Either the lordship of Jesus or the lordship of self, the lordship of the world, the lordship of the masses, the lordship of the mob, the crowds, whatever. Every knee will ultimately bow, yes, to Jesus in the end. But in the meantime, your knee will bow to someone or something either the lordship of Jesus or the lordship of something else. Kingdom life involves the surrender also of our opportunities. There will be times in which faithfulness to Jesus will cost you chances, chances to move up, chances to participate in this or that. Which is why 
kingdom life involves the surrender of our priorities. Think about the trajectory of youth sports consuming all of a person's week, all of a family's week. The trajectory of even adult sports. I love me some football, but during football season, if you're going to stay up on it, it is all-consuming. There are games all day on Saturday after you wake up at noon. There are games all day on Sunday. They'll even put them on Sunday morning because we'll fly a couple of teams over to London for games. They're on Monday nights after work. They're on Thursday nights after work. They're even showing football games on Friday nights. You don't want to go to the actual Friday night lights at your local high school? You can watch some high school football on television. There's like no end. There's no breathing room. Think of the trajectory even of leisure sporting. You know, going out and playing at the park or going out fishing, going out hunting, whatever it is. The trajectory of all of these things is that it becomes ultimate in a person's life. The thing that consumes all of your time, all of your energy, all of your free money. But kingdom life involves the surrender of our priorities. That is not to say we can't enjoy watching a football game or playing a baseball game or going fishing or hunting or anything like that. But at some point, you must choose what priorities are immovable in your life. In your family's life together, what priorities are fixed and firm? What things get done regardless of whatever else might not get done? Gathered worship. Is that merely penciled in on our calendars? Or is it pinned in, sharpied in, highlighted and circled and unmovable? Uncompromisable? Do we let... Other things get into the way of the things that we say are our greatest priorities, the most important things in our lives. Are they betrayed by the things that really matter? I enjoy memes. Austin, Andrew, you know this. Bill, you're starting to get to know this. My kids even know this. I enjoy memes. It's one of my guilty pleasures of pop culture, which otherwise I pretty much just generally hate. I do not like pop culture. But I especially appreciate the meme that reads, you'll go to jail for Jesus? Shut up. You won't even go to church for him. I love that one. It's a bit salty. It's a bit salty, a little preachy, I know, but I, I do appreciate that one. But kingdom life involves the surrender of all of who we are. Our welfare, health, well-being, our reputation, our opportunities, our priorities. It involves 
even the surrender of our friendships. Now, that's not to suggest that we consider our friends replaceable. That is an anathema to the image of God of each person in our lives. Your friends are not means toward your happiness. They're not tools for your benefit. And if they're not making you happy or benefiting you, just scrap them and find new ones. I am not saying that. God forbid that. But do you and I see the friends in our lives, those that He's placed in our lives, as providential means of His grace? Some of them are there to help us move deeper into His grace. Some of them are to afford us opportunities to share our faith, being a sort of means of grace in their lives. Sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. Sometimes just by the slow movements and developments of trust and friendship. Some of them are to wake us up to the reality of what really matters in our lives. If your friends are pulling you down, perhaps you need to man up and grow a spine. Perhaps you need also more friends. Some who can build you up. Perhaps you need to realize that some of your friends aren't really friends at all. You're just pretending. But the Lordship of Jesus brings clarity. Anything in our lives looked through the lens of the Lordship of Jesus begins to take on a special clarity. Kingdom life involves the surrender of even our lives themselves. The Scriptures warn us over and over again, implicitly and explicitly, that death awaits us all, and sometimes it will be hastened because of our faithfulness to Jesus. And that's just it. Jesus. His presence is key. He imposes. I remember uh, mentioning that in a sermon years ago, and someone I love dearly coming up and asking me afterwards, I, or really saying, I didn't really like how you put that. Jesus imposes himself on us. Is that really, is that really, like, how does, how free are we if he imposes himself on us? And is that really like him? And um, I shared my, uh, I shared my participation in her concern, but I also said, quite frankly, he does impose himself. He's imposed himself in your life just by virtue of the fact that you're alive because he made you. And he did not ask your permission before he made you. Obey. <laughs> Will you proceed to the root or not? <laughs> Again, his presence is key. He imposes. But 
we find within ourselves an aversion to that imposition. It's interesting that gospels, in the Gospels, Jesus just steps right into the lives of others. Now, there are some who run to him, some who come begging to him. The Gentile woman saying, please, Lord, even the dogs have a little bit of crumbs, don't they? But naturally, we push back against his imposition. But the fact is that he can impose because he has the authority to impose. But also he ought to impose because we have great need for him to impose himself upon our lives. Our world is falling apart. From the very beginning when Eve received that forbidden fruit, all throughout time, the world is falling apart. And we desperately need God who made it to impose Himself upon it. Because in His presence, there is redemption. Emmanuel is a promise, but it also brings risk. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. N.T. Wright apparently preached a sermon once, a Christmas sermon titled, Violent Night. Violent Night. Think of the massacre of the innocents. All that changed because Jesus showed up. You know, the kingdom of heaven and suffering are not irreconcilable. In fact, often living out the values of the kingdom leads to our suffering. The scriptures all but promise it. You might even say that they do promise it, actually, Pastor. But it's when Jesus hears of the arrest of John the Baptist for his faithfulness, for his willingness to say what dare not be said to a man like Herod who dare not be spoken against. He is arrested, thrown in prison, will later lose his head because of his unwillingness to shut his mouth. It is in that context, the arrest of John the Baptist, that Jesus begins to go out throughout Galilee and proclaim the kingdom and calling people to repent. Because the kingdom of heaven demands repentance. And what is repentance? It is a complete change. Ultimately, it's predicated on surrender. The willingness to lay down our arms. The willingness to hold up our hands. To make ourselves vulnerable to the one who has power over us. But the kingdom of heaven demands repentance, and repentance from what? From sin. 
And it's amazing how abundantly clear, how abundantly clarifying the Scriptures are in regard to sin. It was the Danish existentialist Christian theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, who said, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are, oblig- uh, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words of the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. He's getting on us, Austin. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. To ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Now, I'm not only a New Testament Christian, nor was Kierkegaard. And I'm not wholesale against Christian scholarship, and I think in his heart of hearts, neither was Kierkegaard. But what needed to be said, he was willing to say. We try to complicate matters. What God calls sin, we say, well, you know, historically speaking, let's keep all things, you know, in balance and make sure we have a very measured approach to what we're willing to call sin or not. Again, you will either compromise or you will be ostracized in the world. Again, what is repentance but the activity of agreement with Jesus concerning ourselves and our need for His redemptive presence, coupled with the activity of directing our lives according to His Word. Only this is true repentance. Agree with Jesus, live accordingly. Which the two really are one and the same. Trust and obey. There's no other way, David. You know the hymn. Agree with him, live like it. That's what's happening on the page here. As Jesus says, follow me, they leave everything. Sorry, Dad. Sorry, occupation. It's all on the altar. Everything. Or nothing. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven guides our movements where we live, with whom we run. Jesus is calling people together, He's calling people away from this and into that. He's 
bringing them together. And it's interesting. Dr. Friedman does a great job of pointing this out, David. That when Jesus calls the disciples to himself, the very next thing he does is lead them into the lives of others. He takes them to those who are demon-possessed. He takes them to the lepers. He takes them to the sick and those who can't walk and can't see. That is his very next turn. Come with me. Where are we going? To these kinds of people. And so you have then Jesus' faithful people. And yes, you have wayward people, but you also have Jesus' hurting people. And often those overlap one another, if not always. His faithful people in many parts of their lives are truly hurting people. Now we think of hurt in you know, strictly kind of nominal ways or strictly minimized way or, or uh, in strictly uh, materialistic ways. We think hurting means you're financially impoverished or we think you're physically sick. But there's poverty and sickness of all sorts, physical and financial, relational, emotional, mental, spiritual. We're all poor, just some differently poorer than others. We're all hurting, just some differently hurting than others. The kingdom of heaven guides our movements. We have got to be willing, like Peter and Andrew, like James and John, to when we hear the voice of Jesus say, come on, we're willing to say, I'm on my way. Where are we going? And truth be told, if we are only with Jesus' faithful people and not with hurting people, which, again, faithful as we are, we still have hurts in our lives. And to not be with faithful people, either you're just not with them or you're not willing to get close enough to know the hurt. If that is the case about us, that we're only willing to get together with His faithful people and keep everything kind of surface level because we don't want to get the hurt near us and we don't want to get near to the hurt, then doubtlessly we're missing Jesus. Because it was He Himself who said that in hurt, that's where we will find Him. What you did to the least of these, to those without food, without shelter, without clothing, without friends, the lonely, the broken, it's precisely in the midst of all of that lack that Jesus says we will find Him. 
And so we've been talking an awful lot about the kingdom of heaven, as did Jesus. The kingdom life, to which we are called by Him. But really, the center of the whole matter is the King Himself. Jesus. He is the center of it all. His presence. Emmanuel. He has manifested the world. He has come to redeem it. To put it back together. He shows up and everything changes. Everything is on the line when He shows up. He calls us to Himself to live our lives according to His will. And the only fitting response is complete, unwavering, uncompromising surrender. See, our problem, and by our I mean the problem of the American church, the Western church as a whole, but especially the American church, is that we think that the gospel means, and following Jesus means, I have a pretty okay, well put together life in which I've got plenty and I'm responsible and um, living a life that's pretty well put together. It's certainly not like that, guys. And to this life that's good and whole and well-rounded, I can add Jesus. And He's my cover because in the end, we know, well, I'm not good enough to get to heaven, but He's my ticket to get there. And we think that's what the gospel is. But that's no gospel at all. That's the gospel of the American dream. That's the gospel of Western idealism and individual realism and Jesus is some accessory that we can add to our lives to enhance ourselves, to become our better selves. But the gospel really is about the lordship of Jesus, and it demands of us a complete and utter surrender of ourselves to Him. No matter how good or bad we might think ourselves to be, is every bit of who we are surrendered to His Lordship. That is the only question that matters. That is the only question that can truly change a life. That's really the only question that can truly change the world. Are you and I completely surrendered? That's the question we must all ultimately face. 
And that question comes to us when Jesus says, follow me. That question comes to us when Jesus comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the question that comes to us when Jesus says, let's go to those lepers. Let's go to this synagogue. Let's go to those sick people. Let's go to those broken ones. Surrendered. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your call upon our lives in your son Jesus. We thank you for making room for us within yourself to know you, to love you, to be known by you, to be loved by you. And Lord, we pray that every bit of who we are, every bit of our lives, every bit of our families, every bit of our church, that it would be completely and utterly surrendered to the Lordship of your Son, Jesus. Lord, for the sake of the world, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our families, for the sake of our friends, for the sake of all that you've put in our lives, we pray that you would help us to, to live out truly a completely surrendered life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.